Well, hello, welcome once again. My name is Dion, and I'm excited to share with you our final week in the series, The Lego Conundrum, where we're talking about connection. When things are bad in life, when things are, are hard, when, when you're depressed, when you're anxious, when you're stuck in a rut, when you're looking for help to get better, to change, to improve your life, um, you may, a lot of us do, either seek out a counselor or maybe a good book on whatever subject of the subject of whatever thing you're going through, or maybe even a podcast. And if you do, if you, if you ever consult help from those sources, you'll hear things that maybe sound a little bit like, like this, change your thinking and change your life. Or how about this? Uh, you can't love anyone else until you love yourself, power of self-love. Or uh, find the power within. Or how about this? Overcome fear with positive self-talk. Some of us could use that help, I think. Or how, how about this one? Positive thinking, the key to success. Or this one's my personal favorite. You have the power. It sounds like He-Man, right? Um, I have the power. Anyway, um, these messages sound familiar. I take it. You probably heard something like this before. What, TV show, a counselor. Yeah. Uh, I was reading a book, and I'm reading a book. I'm just finishing it up. It's by Dr. Henry Cloud, Christian psychologist. He's a leadership coach, really impressive guy. He's written a lot of books. Um, this book is called The Power of the Other. I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm wrapping it up. And he's the one who put forward that list in a chapter that I read this week. Uh, he offered that list, and he said, you know, there's some truth to all of those things. All of those things can be helpful. But in all of that advice that we hear so often when we consult, counsel, consult counselors or books or, or podcasts or other forms of help, all, all of those things, they can be helpful, they can be true, but they're missing an important element. Anyone care to venture what that element might be? It's in the title. Uh, it's other people. It's the power of another person. It's the power of relationships in our life. And, and Henry Cloud argues, and I agree, that if... If you want to change your life, if you want to change your thinking even, if you want to discover your power, if you want to learn to love others or love yourself better, this is not something you can do on your own. You need other people to help you do it. You need other people to show you the way. You need other people to encourage you. It depends not just on yourself, but life change, uh, becoming better, growing, becoming more whole depends also on others. And that's why in the series we've been trying to, to talk about the things that often get in the way of us having deep and meaningful connections with other people in our lives, the kind of connections that can help us grow, that can change us, that can make us better, that can bring healing into our lives. And today I've got one final thing to share with you, one final thing that, that I think gets in the way of our connections. And that is, you ready for this? The fear of commitment. Now, all the guys in the room, you can feel free to check out for the ni next 90 seconds because you already know about this. It just comes with maleness. But I think a lot of us probably know about the fear of commitment. It seems that a lot of us just have these alarm bells in our heads that go off whenever we feel like our freedom is being encroached upon. When, whenever we feel like someone's limiting our options or, or narrowing our freedom or we're going to miss out on something by saying yes to one thing, we have to say no to other things especially when we feel like we're being pressed to commit and we're not sure about it, man, we suddenly can become Harry Houdini, can't we? Like masters of escape, get me out of here. And although it's understandable, though it's natural, this fear of commitment, is, it's, it's an obstacle that gets in the way of us having the kind of connections 
that can really be life-changing, especially in those moments of life when we need help. The kind of connections that the Bible talks about. In the book of Proverbs alone, there are, there are all of these pieces of wisdom that are strung together in a book of the Bible called Proverbs. If you've never read Proverbs, it's kind of a fun thing to read through. There's a lot of quirky wisdom, but it's all true. It's all good. It's all really helpful. It's really practical. Proverbs talks about connection. It talks about relationships. It says things like this. It says, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Isn't that kind of what you want out of your relationships? You want people who will sharpen you, who will make you better? And isn't that kind of the, friend that you, the kind of friend you would like to be to other people? You'd like to be a friend who helps sharpen people, make, not make them dull. You don't want to be dull. Uh, you want to make people better. Or what about this? Also in Proverbs 27, it says, do not forsake your friend or a friend of your family and do not go to your relative's house when disaster strikes you. Better a neighbor nearby than a relative far away. And again, isn't this the kind of friend you want to be? The kind of friend who is there for someone when they're in disaster, where they don't have to go and run and find someone else. They, they can show up on your doorstep and there's no problem. Better a neighbor nearby than a relative far away. That's what I want for my friendships, especially because all my family lives in Michigan. <laughs> I don't want to have to run there if I need help. I'd love to, to, love to have friends that are, that are nearby. Or uh, Proverbs 17 says, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for a time of adversity. I love this. A friend loves at all times. But then part of me says, all times? <laughs> really, really all times? A friend loves at all times? Not just when it's easy, not just when it's fun, not just when I don't have anyone, to help, anyone else to hang out with on a Friday night. A friend loves at all times, not just when we're clicking, even when you're annoying, even when you're rubbing me the wrong way, even when it's difficult. A friend loves at all times times. See, I, I consider myself a pretty good friend to people, but when I read these words, I'm challenged. I'm challenged. I, I realize that although I want to be the rock other people in my life can rely on, more often than not, I'm, I'm a little more like that. Uh, Kevin Hart, not the rock. I mean, I, I think I want to be this guy. I want to be the Proverbs guy. But there's something that's holding me back. And one of the things that holds me back is the same thing that holds you back. It is this, it is this unwillingness to commit. Not just in a romantic sense. Some of us will do that. We will, we will get up the courage to commit ourselves to one person in marriage for life. But I'm talking about it in other relationships. Our unwillingness to commit often is a thing that holds us back. And uh, here are some of the common commitment killers that we, we face. Uh, for starters, we have so many options. In our family, we're, we're a fan of Costco. Anyone like Costco? Yeah, Costco's a great place. Although my wife warns me all the time. She says, yeah, you can get good bargains there. But she, her theory is this, that if, if you've got 10,000 rolls of paper towel in the pantry, you're just going to use more paper towel every day. Because you're like, why not? We've got 10,000 rolls, right? I just turned, just lights went on right there. You're like, oh, that's right. I think the same thing happens in our relationships. We're living in a time where we have so many options when it comes to relationships. We've got all kinds of people around us. I mean, we here, we're a part of a big church. Um, but even so, we've got technology that enables us to stay connected with people who live in other places. It can be a great thing, but those are more options. We can get reconnected with people that we haven't maybe seen for 20, 30, 40 years. And, and I think what happens is often our friendships can become disposable. It's like, why not? 
You know, I, I don't need to commit to any one person or any group of people. I want to keep my options open. I want to experience all of the relationships that I can. And, uh, and you know, I'll, I'll use someone for a little while. And, and then when that gets hard, I'll just move on to the other because there's so many options out there. Or how about this one? We put economic opportunity first. I think a lot of us tend to believe that financial betterment is the key to a better life. And so when we get a job offer in another city and we're weighing the whole thing out, we we usually say, yeah, well, I know we'll have to leave people behind. We'll have to leave our friends, but we can always make new friends by staying here. We can't make an additional 20, 30, $50,000 a year. Maybe, Maybe we should just go. Because we imagine that a better life is equal to our financial well-being, and certainly that has a, has a role to play in all of that. But we downplay the need for deep, lasting, committed connections. Or uh, how about this? Life is exhausting. Can I get an amen on that? <laughs> I mean, life is exhausting. The pace of life that, that we collectively keep is sometimes just insane, isn't it? I mean, my life is crazy, and then I look at some of you, and I just go, I don't understand how you do it. That's, that's wild. And, and while life is exhausting, we have these relationships that we really have no choice but to invest in. And, and so if we're married, it's, it's our marriage. If we have kids, it's our kids, or it's our siblings, or it's our parents. We've got a boss at work to keep happy, or employees to keep happy, or we've got coworkers to, we've got to manage those relationships. And life is exhausting, and we end up spending so much relational energy to keep the relationships with, with people that, that kind of have to stay good, good. We, we spend all of our energy there because life gets really bad when your spouse isn't happy or your boss isn't happy with you that we, we look at what we have left over and we just go, hey, having deeper friendships, that sounds great, but who has time? And who has energy for that? And kind of tied in with that is, is the fourth thing. I think sometimes our need for others isn't very apparent. You know, I, it, I, don't, I, don't, I don't need people like I, like I need other relationships or I don't need people like people maybe needed each other um, years ago. You know, it used to be that um, you, you just needed people to survive. You needed other people in your life who would help you fend off invaders because <laughs> that was a thing. Uh, you needed people who would help you raise a barn. I've never raised a barn, but I'm told you can't do that alone. Um, you, you needed people who would take in your family while the rest of your, like, you know, half your family ship them off to someone else's house while the rest of you are in quarantine with the Black Death with the plague. I mean, that was a thing and you needed someone to take your family in or if your house flooded or it burned down, you didn't have anywhere to go. So you need someone to take you in. I mean, there was a time where you needed people and it was obvious why you had to invest in these relationships. But now, well, we got police officers, police departments and ADT that keep us safe and we don't build barns anymore. And if we do, we can hire someone to do that. And, and if, if our family gets sick, we can send them off to the hospital. We, we don't have to keep them in quarantine. And if our house burns down, there's a residence in. I mean, is it just that we're evolving now and w- what we used to need as people in human relationships, we don't need anymore? My answer to that is not a chance. Now, the needs or the, or the kind of need may be changing, but we still need people just as much as ever. Deep, committed relationships. We need people who will stand by us, who will love us at all times, even when we're going through a divorce or job loss or financial ruin, even when we're depressed or we're taking anxiety medicine, even when we're dealing with a teenage pregnancy or a kid who's gone astray in some other way, right? 
I mean, don't we all long for, for the kinds of relationships that we can count on, that, that they'll be at our doorstep the moment they hear about a sudden car accident or a sudden illness or a sudden death? They'll be there. We don't even have to invite them. They will just show up. Don't we still need people that we can invite into our deepest shame and our greatest fears and people who will sit with us in them without fear of judgment. See, we still need people. We still need connections. And so often we, we have these connections and we've got a ton of them, but, but they're not deep enough to offer us the kind of connection that we really need, the kind of connection that can help us heal, the kind of connection that can help us grow, the kind of connection that can bring us wholeness. And so today, uh, what I want to do is I want to I share with you a couple of stories from Scripture about friendships, connections that are, are like that. They're, they're this life-giving, healing, deep kind of connection, these storied, epic friendships. Um, and through them, I, I want you to see not only what it looks like and the power of it, but I also want to give you an important mechanism that might help you take the relationships that you currently have to a place of depth where truly you can, you can experience that Proverbs kind of stuff in your relationships. And the first story I want to tell you is a story of two women. Their names are Naomi and Ruth. Now, some of you maybe know this story. It's, it's just a really powerful story. Um, Naomi was an Israelite woman. She was married to an Israelite man. And they experienced a famine in their homeland. And during these times, I mean, imagine like the Dust Bowl in Oklahoma. During these times, people just had to leave. They had to leave their homeland to go find food, to, to figure out how to survive. And so she and her husband left Israel. They went to a foreign land. They lived there for a good amount of time. They had sons. Those sons grew up to the age where they were ready to be married. And so they married their sons to foreign women, non-Israelite women. Uh, one of them, one of the women, uh, one of their names was Orpah. The other was Ruth. So you've got Naomi, the, the mother, the mother-in-law. You've got Orpah and Ruth married to their two sons. And they're living in this foreign land. And then more tragedy strikes because Naomi's husband and her two sons all die. Bad genes. And what happens is these three women who were once connected by marriage... All of that connection is dissolved. But, but worse, you have these three women who are now fighting for survival. See, in the ancient world, you couldn't be a woman living on your own. There was no way for that. Legally, you couldn't own property. You couldn't just go get a job. You needed to be tied with a man. You needed a, a, a male heir or a relative or someone who would help take you in. And so these three women are not just you know, experiencing a lot of loss and grief and tragedy, but, th but they now are, they're fighting for survival. And the natural thing would, would be to say, hey, we were once connected. That hasn't happened anymore. It's not our fault. Um, and, and now it's every woman for herself. It's been real, ladies. But it's now survival. And we've got to go find men who will take us in. And three of us are never going to take three women in at the same time. Like, it's time to go our separate ways. That would be the natural thing that you just expect would happen. And yet, that's not what happened with these two uh, three women, really, the two women. Uh, look at the story. It says, then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home, and may the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Now, this isn't just romantic sentiment. This is survival, right? 
Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud. And they said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. And even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. And at this, they wept aloud again. And, and so, so, like, bad situation. And Naomi's old and she's not going to get remarried and she's just got, she's got to go figure it out. And these two women got to go and it's a parting of ways, but they have a hope, they have a future. It says, then Orpah, one of the women, kissed her mother-in-law, Naomi, goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, but Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. And I love these words. Where you will go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. And then the two women, they go back to Israel and Ruth is a foreigner there, but, but they make it together. They survive together. And those words that Ruth spoke to her mother-in-law, I mean, would to God that there were more mother-in-law, daughter-in-law relationships like that in the world, right? But these words that Ruth has spoke, spoke to her, uh, her mother-in-law have become so powerful, so well-known that couples now who are getting married, they have those words read at their weddings or they even say those as vows to each other because they're so powerful. And if you're interested in the rest of the story, it's not a long book. Go read the rest of, of Ruth. That's just the part of the first chapter. And you'll see just what a powerful story this is. A powerful story of friendship, of connection through thick and thin, thin. Friends who love at all times. And like that story is another story that I want to share with you. It's a story of uh, two men. David and Jonathan, men who came to be so close that people sometimes imply that there was something scandalous about their relationship. But I think that's probably more of an unfortunate commentary on how little we expect out of relationships, men, uh, men between men. Uh, now, David, you've probably heard of. David became the greatest king in Israel's history, a man after God's own heart. Interestingly, David is also the great-grandson of this woman, Ruth, who went home with Naomi and lived with the Israelites and became an Israelite. That's his great-grandmother. And uh, David, like I said, was going to become a great king. Jonathan, such an unlikely relationship. Jonathan was the crown prince of Israel under the current king, King Saul. So Saul was king. Saul had displeased God. God said, Saul, I'm taking the, the kingdom away from you. I'm going to give it to another. Saul finds out later that that's David. Saul is really jealous. He hates David. He wants to kill David. He tries to kill David on several occasions. And stuck in the middle of this is Jonathan. The guy who was being groomed, who was raised to be the king, now sees this other guy, David, who's supposed to be the king, and his father who hates David. But, but early on in their relationship, um, David and Jonathan, they, they just find this connection. 
And they, they begin this just incredible friendship that we often just don't even see talked about or hear about between two men. Several times over, Jonathan has to make a choice. Am I going to be loyal to my father or am I going to be loyal to my friend David? And every time he chooses David. Not only that, but um, when David receives word later on that Jonathan is killed in battle, man, the emotion of that text, you can go find it in 1 Samuel, it's, uh, it, is, it is some of the most emotional, uh, poignant words, moments in all of scripture. Or uh, later on, there's a moment where David, he's thinking about his best friend, Jonathan, and he's missing him. And he sends out PIs, private investigators, all over the, all over the kingdom. And he says, find me someone from Jonathan's family. Surely there has to be someone left because most of his family had been wiped out in, in a military rebellion. And he says, just find me someone and bring them back to me so I can show kindness to someone in my friend Jonathan's family. And the private investigators, they go and they find this man by the name of Mephibosheth. I dare you to say it. Uh, Mephibosheth is his name. And, uh, and they go and find him. And Mephibosheth is a man who's disabled. He's been disabled from the time he was small. And he's kind of living in hiding from political you know, forces that might want to do him in. And he doesn't want people to know he's Jonathan's son. And, and so these PIs, they, they find him and they bring him back to David. In the moment, man, it's, it's so powerful. The moment... They bring Mephibosheth before David. David weeps and he embraces him and he says, you will now live in my house. You will be, you will eat from my table. You will be like one of my own sons because you were the son of my beloved friend, Jonathan. And I don't know about you, but, but when I read or when I hear stories like that, there's something in me that just comes alive. And I say, yeah, that's what we're made for. That's the kind of connection I long for. Maybe if we all had connections like that, we wouldn't be so sad and, and sick and broken and hopeless. Maybe, maybe everything would be better if we only had connections like that. But here's what I need to say about that. That just like with Ruth and Naomi, David and Jonathan, this didn't just kind of happen by magic. There was a moment when this relationship became deeper. Uh, here's the moments in 1 Samuel. It says, after David had finished talking with Saul, um, so again, Saul wants to kill David. Um, Saul's bringing David into his court because you know that old saying, keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer. Um, that's what Saul's doing with David. Um, so uh, he has this interaction, Saul and David. But after that, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. And from that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. So he kind of isolated him, again, keeping him close. And, and so here's David in this horrible, vulnerable place, isolated from his family. But Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And here's what he did. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Now, some of you are going, now this is getting weird. Why is dude getting naked? Like, what's going on here? Um, what, what's going on here is actually a covenant ceremony. It says he made a covenant, and these are signs of his loyalty. Jonathan, in this moment, is pledging himself to David, and these are all symbolic things, like his sword and his bow, the weapons of war, his, his robe and his tunic. Those are signs of his honor, and, and he's saying, David, my allegiance is to you. He's forming with him a covenant. And you see, this is an important word in the Bible. This is an important concept that we all need to understand. A covenant is a relationship promise. 
And um, it's, it's, it's a relationship promise often that's made by someone who is greater to someone who's lesser, someone who has power to someone who has less. So, so Ruth is a young, eligible woman. She's going to get remarried. It's going to be easy for her. Naomi is an old widow who stands no chance of ever being remarried, who has no sons, who has no husband, who has no one to care for her. Ruth says to Naomi, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. If they bury us in different places, may God punish me. I will never leave your side. Jonathan, the crown prince, says to David, this this persecuted man whose father's trying to kill, hey, I I am on your side. My allegiance is fully to you, not to my father, but it's it's to you. A covenant is a relationship promise. Someone greater usually makes it to someone lesser. And it's it's a promise that's without conditions. It's often a promise that is unconditional. It's it's an eternal promise. It doesn't depend on reciprocity. It's, It's lopsided by nature but it's an enduring promise. When God makes promises to us, he makes covenant promises. God of the universe, who's so much greater than us, when he speaks a promise over us, it's not, he doesn't expect reciprocity. He's not expecting us to hold up our end. He says, I will be to you regardless of who you are to me. I pledge myself to be in your corner, to be on your side. That's why when God speaks your name in baptism, That's why that's such a powerful thing because when God speaks your name and he declares you to be his daughter or his son, he's making a promise of how he will treat you for the rest of your existence. He will treat you like a daughter or a son. He will pursue you with his love. And it doesn't matter what you do, he's still gonna love you. Now you you can reject that love and you cannot receive the benefits of that love and that is a tragedy, but that's not gonna change who God is. He's making a promise and it's a covenant promise. And you see, this is how God loves. When we read Proverbs and it says a friend loves at all times, that, that's how God loves. He loves at all times, not just when you're holy or good or you got your act together or you're coming to church or, or you're giving a lot of money. He loves you at all times. And, and you know how Proverbs said, hey, better to have a neighbor nearby than a relative far away. God is that place of refuge you can run to. In fact, he's the one who's on your doorstep when things go awry. He's there present before you even realize it. And he's the one that you can go to in divorce or depression or any of those other crises in life. He is the one that you can invite into your deepest shame and your greatest fears. And no, you will not be judged, but instead he will sit with you in it. And why is God that way to us? Because when he, when he makes a promise to us, our relationship, it is a, it is a covenant relationship. And it doesn't depend on our flakiness or our obedience. It's something that God has initiated, something that that God has taken responsibility for, a promise that God has made. Now we, on the other hand, this is why this is hard for us, we're contract people when it comes to our relationships. We're not covenant people. We say, hey, if you do this for me, then I'll do this for you. And if you stop doing this for me, you better be sure I'm gonna stop doing this for you. And I might even sue you. That's how we work with our relationships. And, and yet, God deals with things so, so differently. And, and not only that, see, see here's, here's the key. If you study the epic relationships of Scripture, David, Jonathan, Naomi, Ruth, or any of the others, if you study those epic relationships in Scripture, it's not just like, oh my gosh, I wish I had a best friend like that. I wish, I wish there was someone wonderful in my life like David or Jonathan. These are people who are broken. They have their problems. But, 
But the mechanism that made these relationships so powerful, so healing, so life-giving was that these were covenant relationships. At some point in the relationship, one person looked at the other and said, you know what? I'm promising that I will always be in your corner. I will be the friend who loves at all times. They make that promise overt. See, that's the key. And you can study any of the great relationships in the Bible and they don't happen. Relationships don't become great without a covenant basis. So right now, maybe as I'm talking, you're thinking of someone in your life that, that, that is, is like almost there. They are, almost are that person, but you've never taken the step to make it formal, to express overtly your commitment to that person in a covenant relationship. I want you to think right now, who is that person or who are those people? And what might it look like to covenant with them? Now, let me clarify something really quickly. Um, This kind of covenant relationship, it's not for all of your relationships. You you can't have this with every one of your friends. That's not the purpose. That's not the point. It's impossible. Research, in fact, says that the number that you can have this kind of relationship with is about five. I showed these to you a long time ago. A researcher named Dunbar, um, he did did this research about our relationships. You can know 1,500 people kind of by face, 500 people by name. 150 people, that's probably the number of people that you'd invite to your wedding, which is why weddings can get so out of hand if you each have 150, plus your parents have some, you know, you got a lot of people there. Of 50, that's the number of people that you might invite to a significant birthday. 15 people, that's, that's the number of people in your life, the number of relationships that you have that you might actually entertain traveling with on a vacation. And five, five relationships, those are going to be your deepest relationships, or at least the relationships with the most potential to be deep. The relationships that you can share your deepest struggles with, your greatest fears, your deepest shame, those are your covenant people. See, it's not for everyone, but chances are you probably have five people in your life that are poised for this kind of relationship. But, But here's what I have to say. You can have that five, but you'll never experience the depth of these biblical relationships, Naomi, Ruth, David, Jonathan, Proverbs kind of relationships. You'll never experience the depth of relationship, the depth of connection that is possible without having a moment where you make that commitment to each other overt, where you look at the other person and you say, you know what, of all the people in the world, and I've got 5,000 Facebook friends, but of all the people in the world, you will be to me like no other. And uh, I'm giving up my right to play the field and to replace you as a close friend if something better comes along. And I will treat you like family. You will become like flesh and blood to me. And what is mine is yours and I will withhold nothing from you. And when things get tough in our relationship and when it's not easy and we're not clicking or you're being difficult or you're sad or you're annoying, I'm not gonna start shopping around for a new best friend. Instead, I'm gonna fight for you, for your health, for your well-being. I'm gonna fight for us. And even when I get a job offer in another city that makes me $50,000 more a year, instead of climbing the ladder, I'll consider you and God better release me for my commitment to you before I ever think of going to another city to make more money to sacrifice this relationship. See, I know this sounds weird and maybe it just sounds like, whoa, you're, that, that sounds, we, people don't do that. I know we don't do that. And that's the point. 
But you know what's at stake here? If, if you're not willing to take this five and intentionalize that relationship, then you know what's at stake here? You'll fall into the real commitment trap. And the real commitment trap isn't, oh, I've been nailed down, I'm stuck, I've limited my options. Now, now, no, the real commitment trap is that you live life bouncing around from relationship to relationship whenever things get hard or boring or, or whatever, and, and you never experience the depth of the kind of connection that can help you grow, that can make you sharper that can heal your broken heart when you're sad, that can help you find greater wholeness. See, I I know this, I know this sounds weird. And maybe some of you think that, you know, I'm just pushing you to do something that you'll never do, but let me just get serious for a minute. This week, uh, we've seen how high the cost of disconnection is, haven't we? I don't know if you know these people, Kate Spade, Anthony Bourdain, um, two people who are at the top of their careers, so accomplished. Um, People who are wealthy and powerful have thousands, millions of admiring fans all around them, people who engage in meaningful work. I mean, all the things that you would think would make a good life. And and I know mental illness is a real thing, and I'm I'm a fan of counseling and medication where it's needed and even hospitalizations where that's needed. But, but I'm telling you, all th- these people had access to all of that. What's at stake here is life and death. This is a life and death issue. This is not fluff. And I know some of you, when we talk about relationships, you think it's soft stuff. You think it's not real stuff. You want to talk about the deeper stuff of faith. This is the deeper stuff of faith. It doesn't get any deeper than this, than loving another person in a committed way. I'm telling you, lives are at stake over all of this. And so getting better, getting better at fostering deep connections with people, committed connections with people, it can make a life or death difference for you and for people in your circle. See, more than ever, our world needs people who are committed to doing the hard work of connecting. Friends who love at all times, no matter what. So here's what we're going to do. Over this series, uh, we've talked about a lot of different things that can help our connections get deeper. We've talked about sacrificial love. We've talked about um, asking and expectations, expressing our expectations, not expecting people to be mind readers talked about forgiveness. We've talked about power and how that's meant to be given away and how that's the key to feeling powerful and connected. Today we're talking about commitment, making overt commitments to the people in our lives who are most significant to us so that those relationships can thrive. And today what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you to to make a commitment not just to the people in your life, but I'm going to ask you to make a commitment to to keep working at this, to make a commitment, even though we're moving on to another series next week because there are other things that we have to talk about, I'm gonna invite you to keep working on being a person who connects deeply with others. And uh, here's how we're gonna do it. Um, At the front of the room, there are these tables. You see them, one way over there, one way over there, two in the middle. Um, On each of these tables, it's a Lego table. It's kind of abstract, but in there, we've traced out the letters L-O-V-E. Now, I know that sounds cute and sweet, but let me tell you, love is anything but cute. 
Love is the son of God hanging on a cross because we were disconnected from our God and and that's what love does. It's anything but cute. And I'll tell you, people in our world are sick and dying for a lack of love. Love of the truest type. And so when you uh, came in, you should have received a Lego. I've got mine here. Um, If you didn't, there's some in the buckets up front. And we're going to sing a song. And it's a song that talks about God's covenant love. And it's a song that maybe you know, but I want you to hear it differently today because it really describes what a covenant love looks like. It seems a little crazy. It seems uh, a little scary at times. It may even seem reckless for someone to love in the way that our God loves us, but that's how he loves us. And and as we sing the words of this song, I'm going to invite you to take a moment whenever you're ready to come forward and on one of these tables, uh, put your Lego in the, fill out the letter here, L-O-V-E, whichever one you're at, fill it out and make that your commitment to being a person who deepens connections with others, who helps other people find connection. Don't just live in the surfacey stuff, but make a, make a life or death difference in someone else's life where, where you can become a connector of people so they can find all the things that we need most. Um, whenever you're ready, come forward, put your Lego on the board. Maybe ask God to help you grow in some aspect of this or just ask God to help you not lose sight of this. Because what our world needs right now are people who are serious about the work of connecting. I hope you'll join me in being one of those people.